Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at the church, and it's so good to see each of you here. If you're visiting with us, let me also extend my kind welcome to you. We know it takes a little extra uh, boldness and courage to come out and visit a church, and we're so glad that you're with us this morning. So this morning, we are in our last week of a seven-week series that we've been going through, and if you've missed any of this series on our values as a church, what are the things that matter most to us? And we define values as deeply held beliefs that inform our behavior and shape our culture. Everybody has a set of values, things that they believe deeply that control and determine the way that they live, the decisions that they make. And so as a church, we have values, and we've gone over seven of them, and we're on the seventh week uh, this morning. Now next week, just to give you a little teaser, a little trailer, uh, next week we're going to start a four-week series on a very familiar story from the Old Testament. It's a story of Jonah. But I believe there's a lot in there that maybe we haven't seen along the way. And so next Sunday, we're going to start our four-week series on Jonah. And actually, Jason Foster, our youth leader, is going to be speaking next Sunday morning. I'm excited for him to share with us out of Jonah chapter 1. So if you want to prepare yourself this week, you can go and read Jonah chapter 1. But this morning, we're talking about generosity our value of generosity. And each of our values come with a value statement. And this is our value statement as it relates to generosity, that we hold tightly to everything God says to us, but we hold loosely to everything God gives to us. So would you humor me for a moment and make a fist with your hand? We're going to let this be tightly, okay? So keep this fist while we're saying this first part, while I'm saying this first part. We hold tightly to everything God says to us. Now open up your hand. We hold loosely to everything that God gives to us. Everything. And this is what it means to be generous, to hold loosely to everything that God gives to us. This includes our time, uh, our talents, and our treasure, our finances, our wealth, our, our money. Now, if you're visiting this morning, I just want to say up front that you may have walked into all of your preconceived ideas about church. This is, the, you're, you're like right now thinking, you know, elbowing the person next to you. See, I told you, this is what I've been telling you. This is why I don't go to church because they just want my money and they always talk about money. I want to say a couple of things to hopefully disarm you. The first thing is, as you already heard from Linda, if you're a guest, the last thing we're looking for is your money. We're glad that you're here. We would love to get to know you. And we don't actually talk about money a lot here at Trinity, but I want to give you really quickly four reasons why I actually think it's unwise, unfair, even inconsistent. Uh, short-sighted to avoid the subject of money completely, okay? Uh, Number one, you don't have to nod, but isn't it true that so many of our problems, so many of our tensions, so many of our issues uh, revolve around money? Money is one of the, you know, the three things that they say that married couples fight over the most about, fight about the most, uh, is money is one of them. Uh, And so money is something that creates a lot of tension in our lives. Secondly, the Bible actually has a lot to say about money and stewardship. In fact, one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, one of the central themes of the entire Gospel is about stewardship and money and how we handle our treasure. Another reason is this. If we want God to be a part of our lives, if we're asking God to do a work in our lives and to help us grow and to change us and to shape us and to make us more like his son Jesus, we can't have God as a part of our life and then say, there's certain parts of my life though I don't want you to have access to. Imagine you're going to get married to someone and, uh, man, you go up to this beautiful lady and you say, "I I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want to give all of my heart to you. But... I don't want you ever to talk to me about how I drive. Never. 
That's off limits. Never talk to me about how I drive or never talk to me about my physical health. That's my business, not your business. Or here's one more. Don't ever, don't worry about what I do on Friday nights. You got the rest of the week. You got the rest. Give me four hours. Don't ask me about it. Don't talk to me about it. Now, ladies, you're going to go for that. Of course not. Why? That's ridiculous that somebody would say, I want you to have access to my life, except for this. And uh, we can't really be choosy if we say, God, we want you to be a part of our lives, shaping us and changing us and helping us. Um, that includes finances, whether we like it or not. But here's, here's another reason. Here's the last reason why I think it's unwise to avoid the topic of money. And it's this. Our reaction to any given topic is often a clue to how much it actually needs to be talked about. Our reaction to any given topic is actually a clue to how importantly it actually is. And as soon as a pastor gets up in the pulpit and says something about money, you feel the whole room get tense. Everybody clutches their wallets and their purses a little bit closer to them. So let me just give you sort of what I think is a life principle. Whenever there is something in your life, whether it's money, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a decision you're making, whenever there's anything in your life that no one else can talk to you about, advise you on, or challenge you on without you tensing up, shutting down, or lashing out, you know what that might be, well, please pay attention because that's a pretty big deal whatever that thing is. It actually may mean more to you than it should. It actually may have power over you that you don't want it to have, pow- you don't want it to have that sort of power. Here's the great irony. It may be the very thing you're holding on to thinking this thing will set me free, but it's actually ens- it's enslaving you. It's controlling you. And money does that for people. So this morning, I just want to say up front, probably 10 to 12 years ago, I heard two messages on generosity and giving by a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. It's greatly shaped the way I look at this. And then this past week, I listened to a message on generosity from a pastor in Missouri named James Bradford. And I just want to credit them both up front because they've really shaped some of the stuff I want to share with you this morning. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick look at something Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. He gave a warning. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, where he takes two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, to talk about money and to say that, that generosity is actually one of the key distinguishing marks of real Christianity. A lot of times we think, well, real Christianity lives this way, votes this way, believes this, does this, says this, doesn't say this, goes here, doesn't go here. But Paul's arguing, no, one of the real marks that you're actually a Christian, one of the real marks that your heart has been transformed by the grace of Jesus is that you're radically generous. You're just a very generous person. So you could be in church your whole life. If you're stingy, then there's a danger. Maybe the grace of God's not at work in your life in the ways that it should be. Paul, in the passage we're going to look at, he actually suggests that there's no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and your attitude towards your money into God's hands. So we serve a generous God. We should be a generous people. So three things we're going to learn this morning. Number one, we're going to learn about the enemy of generosity. Number two, we're going to learn about the result of generosity. And number three, we're going to look at the source of generosity. Okay, the enemy, the result, and the source. And you can follow along in your notes if you'd like. Let's look first at the enemy, the enemy of generosity. In Luke chapter 12, a man walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to settle a financial dispute between me and my brother. And what he really says is, I want you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance between us. Now, this time in this culture, the oldest brother would have received double what everyone else got. So most likely, this is the younger brother 
walking up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want you to convince my older brother to divide it. What's a division? What, by divide, he means half, 50-50. In other words, he's saying, I want you to tell the older brother to give me what actually legally isn't mine. I really only legally get 33%, but I want you to intervene. And Jesus ends up launching into a familiar story about a rich man who stores up things here on earth, and then he passes, and it's, in anyway. But before he does that, we're not going to look at that. He gives a quick warning, and we are going to look at that. Luke 12, 15. It'll be on the screen. Jesus said to this man, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So much wisdom in just one verse. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. There's all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And here we see that the enemy of generosity is greed. The enemy of generosity is greed. Oh, what is greed? Please listen to this definition. We got to define our terms. Listen carefully. Greed is an excessive desire for or an over-dependence on money and natural things. Let me say that again, or material things. Greed is an excessive, these are all important words, these adjectives really matter, Greed is an excessive desire for or an excessive or over-dependence on money or material things. See, a desire, just a desire for money and natural things or material things isn't necessarily greed, but when that desire gets out of order in your heart, when it gets priority over things that should be more important, then it becomes greed. And Jesus, out of all the things he could have said to watch out for, he says, watch out for greed. I have three little girls my oldest turned 10 yesterday, unbelievable, 10 years old, I have a 10-year-old, 10, 7, and 4, and a couple times we've had the privilege of uh, taking them to Disney World because I had a work trip down there, and they came with me, and we went for a day, and you know, when you spend that sort of money, it's not cheap, when you spend that sort of money to go somewhere, um, you want to get the most out of it, Right? How many of you are like me? You want to maximize that day. Like we're going to, we're going to be at the crack of dawn and we're going to stay till they kick us out because we paid this much money. Like we're going to get every single thing. You're going to hug every character and you're going to like it, right? I mean, this is, this is the way it is. And so uh, you go in and you think, I need a strategy to maximize my day. Otherwise, like I know my tendency, I'll spend six hours in the restaurants. That's what I would do on my own because it's food and it's air conditioned. Like that's where I want to be. But so Thankfully, now there are these very helpful websites where people have devoted entire websites to help you maximize your day at Disney World. And they tell you things like, hey, you, don't, you wouldn't know this, but at this specific time every day, these three characters show up by this little store. That's your one shot all day to see Rapunzel. So make sure you get over there. And they're saying, and then watch out for this little place over here. And they're, they're telling you to kind of look out for things, to watch out for things. Why? Because they think you'll miss it. You won't see it on your own. But you know what I've never read on any of those websites? Hey, watch out for Cinderella's castle. You don't want to miss it. You better look for it. Don't miss it. Why? Because it's huge. You can't miss it. You got to walk through it to get into the second half of the park. No one says watch out for Cinderella's castle. because. It's so-, so when Jesus says watch out for greed, here's what he's saying to us. You're never going to see it coming. You're never going to see greed coming. He doesn't say watch out for adultery. You know if that's happening. He doesn't say watch out for murder. He doesn't say watch out. He says watch out 
for greed. When someone tells you to watch out for something, they're worried you might miss it. And Jesus is teaching us something very powerful here about greed, that greed has the power to blind you to itself. Greed has the power for you to say, not my problem. In fact, when I mentioned greed earlier, how many of you thought to yourself, it's not a big deal for me. I'm not, I'm not really that greedy. If people were to be honest and say, here's my six or seven biggest struggles in my Christian faith or with my character, with my life, very few people would list greed. They might say, I get angry, I get frustrated, I'm not patient, I'm not good with, I'm not good with this. I'm not good. But very few people say, you know what, I'm just a really greedy person. I'm very materialistic. Here's how much greed can blind you to greed. All you need to know in order to not think you're greedy is a person who's greedier than you. If you know one person in your family who you think they're really greedy, they're really obsessed with money, they're really focused on money, just one person, and you'll let yourself off the hook, thinking, I'm not as greedy as them. Greed even prevents us from asking hard questions about our money, where it's going, how we're spending it. We don't think about it. We just sort of get what we want, do what we want. Greed has the ability to distort the way you see things. You begin to see things, material things, as possessions that can define you that can give you value, a brand, a little logo on a shirt, uh, a specific type of vehicle, uh, a specific neighborhood to live in. These things define you, and they distort the way you see possessions. And in fact, they end up making you feel superior to people who don't have those things or can't afford them. You'll begin to see people as pawns to use to get what you want, or as your competitors who either have less than you have or have more than you have. And you'll begin to see money in one of two ways. You'll either see money as your source of significance or you will see money as your source of security. One of two things. Now, the people who see money as their source of significance, they tend to be spenders. I'm just going to be honest with you. In my marriage, I'm the spender. I'm the spender. Thank God for Erin. She's the saver. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I don't want to start fights in the room right now. But the truth is, is that many times God has this very interesting way of bringing together spenders and savers, causing them to fall in love with each other and spend the rest of their lives testing each other and trying each other and frustrating each other and annoying each other. And actually, the biblical term is sanctifying each other. So some people are spending, some people are saving. But here's what the spenders tend to do. The spenders tend to say, because I can afford afford to have this in my life, it brings significance to me. It establishes my value. Because I can afford to live where I live, it means something about me. Because I can eat where I want to eat, it says something about me. Because I can dress this way. Because my money gives me access to certain social circles. And those things can so easily become the very way that we convince ourselves that we matter. The very uh, platform we stand on to look down at other people. And so our money becomes a source of significance. And that's for you spenders. But what about you savers? Surely you're better, right? Surely you're a better type of person than the spenders. But money can also be some people's source of security. And so they sock it all away. They save it instead of being generous. They're, they look to their money. They look to their bank account, and, bank account. And on a cold, rainy day like yesterday and today, they can look out the world and say, you know what? Let me just flip through my checkbook. And whew, everything's okay with the world because I have this amount of money here. Let me go look through my retirement account. And so for some people, it's a source of security. I can look out the world and know that no matter what happens out there, I'm secure because I have stuff and I'm holding on to stuff and I'm hoarding stuff. But here's the problem. And you probably know this. Cognitively, maybe not functionally, but money can't give you those things. It can't give you the sense of worth and self that God promises to give you. 
And it cannot, it cannot stop the uncertainties of life from coming your way. Nobody buys their way out of sorrow. Nobody spends their way out of tragedy. It cannot stop those things from coming. What can your money do for you? There's a show that my family and I like to watch on ABC called Shark Tank. And there's a man who sits in the middle of the room. Named, they call him Mr. Wonderful. And he's, he's incredibly wealthy and he has lots of money. And one time he was talking to one of the contestants who was pitching him an idea. And the contestant began to cry. And Mr. Wonderful, who has all this money, he's incredibly wealthy. He looked at the contestant and said, don't cry for your money. And then he said this, your money will never cry for you. He's absolutely right. Your money doesn't grieve for your grief. Your money doesn't rejoice when you rejoice. Your money doesn't give you life. It doesn't give you ultimate satisfaction. If you ask people who have lots of money, how much money is enough money? Many of them will say, one more dollar. It doesn't do that for us. And here's the thing. Whatever you look to for ultimate significance and lasting security, that's your real treasure. Jesus says elsewhere, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And so whatever you treasure most is the most precious thing in your life, and you'll actually give your entire life to have that thing. So if money, it's not just money though, is it? It's what we think money will give us, whether it's control or power or significance or security or status or escape, whatever it is. We look to that thing and we say, if I only had that, then I could live my life happily. Uh, is that a right? Is that even a word? What did I just say? Happily, uh, joyfully, and, and we can live our lives in that way because I have that treasure, and it's my, it's my precious. Um, the famous trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, finishes with the return of the king. And if you're not familiar with this trilogy, first off, what's going on with you? Like, what is going on with you? <laughs> Come on, you don't even have to read it. Just get the movies. But um, if you're not familiar with this trilogy, there is a ring. It's called the Ring to Rule Them All, and it's this great ring of power. And with it comes great power, but also it ends up corrupting and destroying the person who possesses it. And the whole mission of the trilogy is, is that this little hobbit uh, is supposed to take this ring to this volcanic mountain named Mortar and, and drop it into and, and melt this thing and let it not have the power over the world anymore. And so um, Frodo and his buddy Sam, they, they, they take this ring right into the middle of the mountain. Now, there's this character. He's one of the more memorable characters from the entire trilogy named Gollum. And Gollum is this, used to be a fine young creature named Smeagol, but he got his hands on this ring, and this ring uh, not just destroyed his insides, but it was destroying his outsides. And he would call the ring his precious and here, here, is the, here is the final scene. Sorry for those of you that have nightmares. Uh, and spoiler alert, by the way. Um, here's the final scene, or one of the final scenes. They did a ton of endings. But here's one of the final scenes of The Return of the Kings. They have the ring in the middle of the mountain, and Frodo has walked it all the way into the middle of the mountain. Now, if you know the story, Frodo, it's already got his heart, so Frodo can't let it go. So Sam has to step in, and they're fighting over this ring, and Gollum who's been kind of tracking them this whole way, grabs it. And look at, the, look at his face. That's, that's like me when I hold a Chick-fil-A sandwich in my hand. It's just, <laughs> just, thank you, Jesus. And he's holding that thing up, and it's his precious. It's his treasure, and he's finally got his hands on it. And in the next scene, he begins to fall. And he's totally oblivious to the fact that he's falling to his death 
because he's got his hands around his precious, his treasure, and he clutches it to his chest. I looked for this, but I couldn't find a still shot of it on the internet, believe it or not. And he clutches it to his chest, and he does this Grinch-like smile. And even as he hits the lava and begins to disintegrate, he's still reaching for his precious. See, you and I often, the very things that we are chasing after, that we're grabbing onto, that we're holding onto, that we're clutching to our chest, as we're doing it, we're falling to our destruction. And we don't care because we got it in our hands and we think that we have something in our hands that can save us and do something for us. But in the end, it's actually brought us to where we are. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. Every treasure in this world but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. You give your life to have me. But Jesus is the one treasure who gave his life to purchase you. And the heart of the gospel, which is the heart of the Christian message, which is the good news that Jesus did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, is this. That Jesus willingly lost his treasure to make you his treasure. He laid down the treasure of heaven to come down to earth. He laid down the treasure of of what he deserved from his perfect life and took our punishment upon the cross. And so he lost his treasure so that he could have you as his treasure. And in doing so, put an end to our greed. So what's the enemy of generosity? It's greed. Secondly, what's the result of generosity? And here we're going to look at this passage that the, a man named Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament and traveled the world back in the first century, telling people all over the Gentile Greek world about Christianity, he wrote letters back to the churches that he helped start. And we have those letters in the Bible. And one of these letters was written to a place uh, in Corinth. And Paul is raising money for famine relief in chapters 8 and 9. There's a famine in Jerusalem. People don't have money and they don't have supplies. So he's writing to these churches, which are in Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey. And he's saying, would you give money to help meet the need? I want to read this passage to you. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 9. It's also in your notes if you want to follow along. Verses 6 to 15. Paul says... The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he or she has decided in his or her heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So so Paul's saying, you don't give because you feel guilted into it, shamed into it, coerced into it. That's not the sort of giving we're talking about. This is giving from the heart. This is glad giving. This is cheerful giving. This is joyful giving. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, in other words, having everything you need because of the grace of God, you may abound in every good work. Every good thing you do flows from God's grace. Verse 9, as it is written, he, God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Look at these next two verses. Here's the result of generosity. For the ministry of this service, he's saying your generosity is not only supplying the needs of the saints, which it is, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And he finishes with this. Thanks be to God 
for his inexpressible gift. What's Paul saying? What's the result of generosity? Two things. In verse 12 and 13, he says two things are going to happen. Number one, people's needs are going to be met. Hungry people are going to be fed. Naked people are going to be clothed. People that don't have a place to sleep are going to have a place to sleep. Why? Because you're generous. Because you're giving. Because you're donating. Because you're not building your world around yourself and you're not living for yourself and you're not building your own kingdom, but you're looking to bless others. So number one, when we're generous, the needs of people around us are met. But number two, when we're generous, he also said in verse 13 that when people see your generosity, they will glorify God. They will praise God. So in other words, there's something about meeting people's felt needs that helps them to consider in some way their real need for God. Oh, some people say, well, we're Christians, so all they really should care about is their soul, their spirit. Let's just get them saved because this isn't going to last forever. So that, but here's the problem. When somebody doesn't know where their next meal is coming from, they don't want to hear about your heaven. They don't want to hear about what you, when, when somebody doesn't know how they're going to provide for their children or put Christmas gifts under the tree for their children, they have more pressing concerns than what you're trying to talk to them about. And so meeting felt needs is, now please hear me, it's not, it's not just a means to an end, okay? If it's just a means to an end, then our giving is not sincere. Even if you don't get the opportunity to talk to them about your faith, it's still worship to God, and it's still in keeping with who God's called us to be, to just open up our hands and hold loosely to everything God has given to us and say, I, I just wanna, I wanna bless you. You're never gonna believe what I believe, it's fine. I'm not giving to you just so you'll agree with me. I'm giving to you because God's given so much to me and I love you and I care for you. And here's a, here's a way I would summarize what Paul says happens when we're generous. We get full stomachs and we get full hearts, both. Full stomachs symbolizing the need of hunger and for clean water around the world and for different needs. Full stomachs, but also full hearts. And generosity, your gener- I, I wanna just go on record saying, this is a generous church. You, you're, you are a generous people. You're a giving people. As your pastor, I don't know what any of you individually give. I don't count the offering. I don't look at the offering. I don't see anyone's giving records, but I get a monthly report with the rest of the leadership as to how we, how we gave the previous month as a church. And I just want to say, based on what I've seen from April, you're a, you're a generous church. You're a giving church. This is not a church full of wealthy, rich people. It just isn't. So you're giving sacrificially. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that because it allows us to meet needs. It allows us that when someone comes in the church and has a need, we can do something about it. Generosity helps us meet the felt needs in our church, in our community, and in our world. And as a church, we need a determined and defined clarity that one of our important roles as Christians is to live and work for the good of our city. Whether your city is Syracuse, whether your town is Clay or Salina or Van Buren, we're here not just to wait around and get out of the city, but to work for the good of the city. When the city prospers, that's a good thing. And that's part of what we're called to do as Christians. Generosity that, f- that meets felt needs and fills stomachs will also, though, end up meeting the real need of a full heart. 2,000 years ago, Christianity basically didn't exist. Now, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to inaugurate a kingdom and build a people. But Christianity did emerge out of Jesus' teachings. And 2,000 years ago, Christianity in its current form didn't exist at all. And it emerged in the most unlikely time in history when um, Roman rule reigned and Greek Hellenistic culture influences 
were the most significant influences culturally. Um, and what you had was you had the Greeks and the Romans who were pantheistic, meaning they had many gods, they believed in many gods, and the idea of one god was so ridiculous that they actually called the Christians atheists at first. Uh, but then you had the Jewish people who did believe in one God, but believed in one God who was so transcendent that they couldn't accept Jesus Christ, the man, as God. And so that's why Christianity was so shocking. And really, can I just be candid, it never should have got off the ground. It just shouldn't have. When the, when the, when the hero of your faith is crucified as a Roman criminal, there's no way that that sort of shame should be the launching pad for what happened. But in 300 years... Less than 300 years after Jesus died, Christianity was the official religion of Rome. Now, some historians will say that's because of the emperor, Constantine. And of course, he declared it, so that was a big part. But other historians would say, yeah, but here's the thing. Constantine, what he really did is he backed a winning horse. He didn't make Christianity the winning horse. Do you understand the metaphor I'm using? He, ba- he, already, he saw what was happening. And so the question that, that everybody who wants to have any sort of historical insight and intellectual integrity about Jesus and the impact of his life, you have to wrestle with this question. How did it happen? How did it happen? How did Christianity rise to prominence in a wicked worldly Rome in less than 300 years? And here's the reason we see from history. Of course, we believe that's because it's true, and we believe because Jesus rose from the dead. But here's the reason why historians, I think, would agree with. It's because nobody else, no other worldview, no other type of people, no other religion could match the beauty of the radically generous lives of these early Christians. They were so generous that when things like the Black Plague came through Rome, the Christians stayed. Um, not all of them, of course, but many of them stayed and di- died. You might think, well, if they stayed, surely God protected them. Surely, no, they stayed and they, they died, but they stayed and they cared for people who were dying. There was something beautiful about the generous life of Christians back then that everyone looked at it and said, man, I don't know what it is about them, but I need to know more. Now, 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, so about 100 uh, AD, we have a historical document. It's not in the Bible, uh, but it's, it's a letter written from a man named Mathodus to Diognetus. And we have it, and basically what Mathodus is trying to do, these are, he's trying to explain to Diognetus, who is not a Christian and doesn't understand anything about Christianity, he's trying to explain to him, here's what Christianity is, here's what Christians are. He's writing a letter to explain it. And it's, it's, I could send you the whole letter if you're interested, but I just picked a couple phrases. He said, they have a common, he's describing the Christians, he says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. They share their table, but they don't share their bed. He's saying their sexual ethic is so different than anything we've ever seen, but they're also incredibly generous. They give their stuff away. Anybody can eat in their home. So they share their table, but they don't share their bed. And then he went on to say, they are poor, but they make many rich. They lack in all things, yet they abound in all. And here's what I think he's saying. They're radically generous. They're shockingly generous and what has happened inside of them to make them so quick to give their money away you ever heard the phrase if it's too good to be true it's or maybe i got that wrong but if something sounds too good to be true it's not true right and somebody's trying to give you free stuff you're like what's what's the catch what what do you want from me and they were looking at these christians going what do what do they want from us and here we see this radical generosity in the lives of these believers. Now, let me just bring it into our world today. How will the cause of Christ rise in our world today? How is Christianity going to extend its influence in the world today? Sometimes we think it's going to be through our music, through our writing, 
through our preaching, through our political efforts, through our moral policing, through our outreach events. Some of those things might be valuable. Some of them actually have no value. But let me ask you this. What about our generosity? What if generosity was a distinguishing mark of Christians in America? There's lots of other things we're known for. Not so great. But what if the tide turned, and even in 15, 20 years, when people talked about Christians, they said, you know what? Man, they're generous. They're so generous. They give everything. Are we known for our generosity? Okay, last point this morning. The source. Where does all this generosity come from? Uh, the quick answer is grace. It's grace. You, you probably heard it multiple times when I was reading the text. Paul talked about the grace of God. And it's grace. There's two types of grace, though. The first is this. It's the grace to live here and now. The grace to live here and now. In verse 10, throw it back up, verse 10, it says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here's what Paul's saying. Everything you have here and now is God's grace. All the wealth you got is from God anyways. And you might say, no, hold, hold on. I, I went to school. I got educated. I studied. I took tests. I wrote papers. I applied for a job. I work hard. I earned this money. This is my money. Well, with what did you do all those things? Breathing the air, God gives us. Seeing with the eyes, God gave us. Using the hands that God designed and thinking with the mind that God placed in you. Displaying the creativity, maybe, that comes from God. Everything God, everything is what God gave to us. And now he's saying, I ask you to share it. Apparently, there was some uh, wedding yesterday in England. And I um, uh, heard something about it. And, um, you know, Harry and, and uh, Megan, they said, don't bring us any wedding gifts. Of course, what do they need? But don't, don't bring us any wedding gifts. Instead, donate to a charity in honor of our wedding, which I think is, that's great, noble. Not for my birthday, but good for them. But, um, <laughs> but they said there is one gift they're almost certainly going to get, and it's from the queen. The queen has a, a tradition of when, uh, like when Prince William got married, for example, she gives property to them. I guess the queen just has tons of beautiful estates around England. And so she has this, this estate, and everybody's sort of trying to predict which property are Harry and Meghan going to get and they think they know which one it is. And so she's going to get... Now, just imagine that she gives them this incredible property worth who knows how many pounds. I mean, just millions and millions and millions of pounds over there. And she gives it to them, and they move in, and they're enjoying it. And she says, oh, by the way, I, I, uh, I forgot to mention something. There's one room in this house that means a lot to me. And uh, it's got a separate entrance. I won't bother you. But can I have... Can you just leave that room for me? Can I have that room? Now, common sense says... It would be mad to say to her, well, obviously because she's the queen, but aside from that, it would be mad to say to her, that's unreasonable. What kind of a, who, you're so greedy. Why would you, why, why are you asking for that room? Why is it so, un, why would it so ridiculous for them to kind of stomp around and be upset and say it's unreasonable? Because, because the only reason they even have that home is because of her. And so for her to come and say, I just, I just want this. So here's what I'm saying. I think you get it. Common sense tells you that if all of your ability to live and enjoy a place like that is through the generosity of another, then it's entirely reasonable for them to say, hey, I'll take uh, 10% of that house for myself. And if everything really comes from God, if everything is from him, then it's entirely reasonable for him to say, 
would you give in return to me something that I've given to you? So there's grace to live here and now. But then also, lastly, it's this. There's grace not just to live here and now, but there's grace to live there and then. In just a moment, we're going to do some water baptisms, and Tony's going to come up and run some water for us, so we're ready for that. But let's just focus in, and, and I'm going to finish. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me read to you one more verse. Beginning in verse 7, Paul says, As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He's talking about generosity, which is an act of grace. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul's saying there's a connection between your giving and your love. And here's the verse I want you to see, and this is what we're going to finish with. Verse 9, for you know for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that by you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's what Paul is saying. Radical, stunning, jaw-dropping generosity is a response to a gospel that is even more radical, more stunning, and more jaw-dropping. He's saying, behold Jesus. Look at what Jesus did to make you rich and righteous before the Father, lacking in no good thing. here's the truth. Every single one of us will approach God in one of two ways. Here's way number one. An all-consuming love relationship based on an experience of grace or way number two, a formal, moralistic, legalistic, contractual agreement where you say to God, I'll do my part, you do your part. And so in the latter one, we say, well, God owes me because I've been a good person and I've done good things and I've worked so hard. But in the former this all is grace, everything is grace, everything is from God, we say, God, I owe you everything because everything I have both here and now and there and then is from you. And this is why Paul can call radical generosity proof that we love and know Jesus. So the enemy of generosity is greed. The result is full stomachs and full hearts and the source is grace. And in closing, let me just touch on this. Some of you might be saying, okay, so how much, how much should I give? And, and by the way, again, if you're a guest, this really isn't for you right now. This is for those who are regulars and, and who, who are, are, are part of this church. And you're wondering, well, how much should I give? Well, a couple thoughts on this, and then we'll finish. In the Old Testament, they talk about what's called the tithe. And the tithe is 10% of whatever comes to you. And uh, in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the prophet instructs the people of Israel to bring in the tithe and to bless God with the tithe. And it's not just Malachi, though. Anytime in the Old Testament, whether it's Abraham or Melchizedek, whenever someone's heart is touched by God, the pattern, the response is 10%, is tithe. Now, some people would say, yeah, but it's not explicitly taught in the New Testament. That's more of an Old Testament thing. And I don't even think that conversation matters. I don't even think that's the right question. I think it's the wrong question. Some people want to say, is the tithe for the New Testament? Is the tithe for the Old Testament? And I would say, wrong question. Here's the right question. How much more blessed are we now in the New Testament? On this side of the cross, how much more clearly do we see the grace of God? So if the standard in the Old Testament was the tithe, then I still think that's a good starting point. And and I realize that's a great sacrifice, but I think that's a good starting point. But it's not meant to be a, a, a thing of bondage on you. It's meant to be, what does it look like for you to give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially? Here, here's my last thought this morning. How did Jesus treasure us? Partially, begrudgingly, in a stingy way? He treasured us sacrificially. And if we're going to respond to Jesus, we have to treasure him also 
sacrificially. Here's two questions to think about. Is there a sacrifice in your economic life when it comes to your generosity? And are you giving in a way that forces you to make sacrifices in your life? Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's bow our heads in prayer.